Samwise Monagas, being um, an investigator of the pyramids in Egypt and in Mexico, said that if this is a pyramid, if this is a pyramid complex, there needs to be underground tunnels that are associated with water. Because, uh, as you may have read, a lot of work has recently been done in the Giza Plateau of, of how the, the water from the Nile would come through and that would charge up the pyramids. So he was looking for tunnels. And so here, about two kilometers away from the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun, we found an entrance. Hi there, I'm Graham Gardner, and you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, episode 43 from the British Society of Dowsers. And in this podcast, we'll be featuring a lecture from our 2013 80th anniversary conference. Uh, one of our most engaging speakers and workshop leaders of the weekend was Nigel Grace, who gave a fascinating talk about the current research going on at the Bosnian pyramids. Now, although Nigel's talk was lavishly illustrated with many wonderful pictures and video clips and charts, uh, sadly I've had to trim most of these sections out with a fairly heavy wielding of the old editing knife, as they don't really translate very well into an audio podcast. Uh, But even without them, I think you'll find Nigel's talk quite fascinating, and it certainly convinced a few of the more sceptical listeners in the audience that there is something remarkable happening in the area of the Bosnian pyramids that's worthy of more research. So let's get straight into Nigel's talk. The, uh, the title of my talk is The Mystery of the Bosnian Pyramids. And I have great honour for me to be here at the uh, 80th anniversary of the Dowsing Society. And I really love the title, Dowsing, Looking Back and Moving Forwards. And so for my very first slide, I wanted to choose a picture where I was looking back in order to look forward. And so the picture behind me is a picture of me standing on a megalithic block about five kilometers away from um, a mountain or a hill with very um, triangular, pyramidal-looking structure to it. It was this structure in 2006 that the uh, professor of archaeology in the University of Sarajevo in Bosnia asked uh, a researcher in pyramids who was studying at that time in South America to come back to his homeland and to look at this very unusual structure in the town of Visico, just outside of Sarajevo. This was a few years after the devastating uh, war that took place in Bosnia that's still very much in evidence today whenever I travel to Bosnia and see the damage and the scars made in the buildings and the towns. When I first went out to Bosnia at the invitation of a gentleman called Sam Osmanagic, I was absolutely fascinated because, like uh, this gentleman, uh, I'm a graduate in sociology, but my main interest, like him, is to study the impact of archaeological findings to our present day and age. So I suppose you could call it the the sociology of anthropology of uh, archaeology, which is a bit of a mouthful. I made the grave error when I was boarding my flight for the very first time to check up on these so-called pyramids in Bosnia, because after all, as some people said, there are no pharaohs in Bosnia, so there are no pyramids in Bosnia. (laughs) 
And I made the mistake of checking Wikipedia and finding out to my horror that it was all a hoax. In fact, the, the words of Wikipedia are indelibly imprinted upon my mind, even today, four years later, that the Bosnian pyramids are a cruel hoax perpetrated against an unsuspecting public and nothing to do with genuine science. <laughs> However, as I saw on the, the boarding that the, the, the flight was boarding and I had to make up my mind whether to abandon, <laughs> abandon my quest and, and follow the words of Wikipedia or, or to, um, to have faith in my, my, the sense of intuition that I had when I first heard about the pyramids in Bosnia and boarded the flight. Well, I was rewarded about an hour and a half later when our flight rounded Sarajevo and began to approach. And from my window seat, I looked down on the beautiful valley of Visico outside of Sarajevo. And I thought, well, can I see it? Is it really here? And as I looked down, I saw a magnificent triangular mountain or hill. And something happened to me at that, that point that I'll always remember. It was as if the energy from this structure came up to greet me and said, well done, you've come. <laughs> As you can see, it doesn't look like the pyramids in Egypt because it's covered with trees and, and grass and fields. This is Sam Osmanagic, who is uh, a professor of anthropology at the American University in Bosnia. And what he's actually describing to us is some of the scientifically measurable uh, attributes of this structure. And I'm going to repeat as much as I've learned from Sam today as possible. But I believe, in my experience, and I've been to these pyramids for six times now, over three or four years, that we cannot study these ancient artifacts through science, the scientific lens alone. We also have to use our senses, um, the, the feeling through our hands, the feeling through our emotions, and also through our spirituality as well. And so today, my story is very much about my own personal experiences, ideas, speculations, and opinions. When I arrived, the first thing, of course, like you would have done, is asked everyone, well, why are you here? Why have you come? And without exception, the volunteers all said to me, we just feel that we have to be here. <laughs> Let, let's start with a little bit of the um, measurable uh, evidence that this could possibly not be a natural hill, but in fact an artificially made or modified structure. This is, uh, as you can see, a, a, a geopathical... Uh, picture from above, and it shows here we can clearly see um, at least three sides in the shape of a triangle and a top. Now, the Bosnian Institute for Geodesy actually measured the alignment of the northern face, because um, it's very important for pyramids. There's an attribute of pyramids, particularly in Mexico and Egypt, that the northern face is aligned with the cosmic north. And in fact, 
uh, for those of you who visited uh, the pyramid in Egypt, that they attribute to uh, the Cheops, will know that perhaps the northern face of the Great Pyramid is almost perfectly aligned with the celestial north by zero degrees, 21 seconds. But as you can see here, that the northern face of this structure in Bosnia is aligned by zero degrees, zero minutes, and 12 seconds, which is almost absolutely aligned with the cosmic north. So here, first of all, we see a repetition of the alignment of structures towards, towards our cosmic environment. Uh, if we were to have a look in terms of the size, the size of the, the, the top of the Bosnian pyramid being 247 metres high, it would in fact dwarf the, the, the pyramid in Egypt and also on the pyramids in Mexico. This is one of my favourite photographs of the Pyramid of the Sun. By the way, I'm going to be using some names for these structures. And these names were, were used by Sam Osmanagic when he came from Mexico back to his home country. And he saw the similarities of the, the, uh, the pyramids in Mexico to the pyramids in Egypt. And so used a pyramid in Bosnia. So he used sun, moon, dragon, love as names for these structures. So here we see this, this wonderful pyramidal structure. Uh, the the uh, flag proudly flying for Bosnia and Herzegovina. And you can see just on the left of this larger structure, there's also uh, within the, the greenery another structure. And this is a structure that um, Sam Osmanagic has named the Bosnian Pyramid of Love. And actually, I, I have a little stone that I keep in my, my shirt pocket here that I picked up from the Bosnian Pyramid of Love. And it is indeed a pure white quartz, and it's very pure. And in my workshop, I'm going to, this afternoon, I'm going to invite you with your dowsing rods to come and douse that together with my, my favorite stone from the Pyramid of the Sun, which I keep in my left hand while I'm talking. So here's a little bit of the, the map of the Bosnian pyramids. Uh, we have a number of structures here that I'd like to describe to you now. Number one, of course, is the large pyramid that you saw us flying over. Uh, number three is the Bosnian pyramid of love. And right over here, this is not quite a pyramid. It's got, it's got one side, two sides, and so we call it a temple. We call it the Temple of Mother Earth. And then right back here, there is a smaller pyramid uh, that we've called the Temple of the Bosnian Dragon. And over here, which is number two, the Pyramid of the Moon. And we have a number of other ones here, which is uh, a mound, an earthen mound, that we call a tumulus, rather like those mounds around Stonehenge which actually are incredibly important in the, the scheme of the valley. Going outside the um, triangular nature of the structure of the pyramid itself, we find something rather remarkable. Just as we find in, in Giza and also in Mexico, that there is a relationship, a geometric relationship, very precisely articulated 
between the pyramidal structures. Just so, in Bosnia, we have found that there is a geometric relationship in terms of a triangle, an equilateral triangle, between the Bosnian pyramid of the sun, the moon, and the dragon. And in fact, here we find 60-degree angles between the sides of this triangle. The distances are exact, uh, 2,120 meters precisely from peak to peak, or perhaps we could say from, from cap to cap. Now, it was only very recently that we started to investigate these structures in Bosnia. In fact, it was only in 2006 that Samos Managic was called back to investigate these from his work. And it was one year later that the British biologist, who many of you will have heard of, uh, Harry Oldfield, who is a really great pioneer in the field of energy medicine, and developed something that he called the PIP camera, P-I-P, or polycontrast interference photography. And Harry, being a great explorer and um, someone with great amount of, of um, interest in anything energetic, went out in the very early days and started to photograph this structure using one of his lenses that he had at the time. And what he found was that there is a... Um, almost vertical ascension of energy from the structure. But first of all, he uh, <coughs> took a photo of the, the village. Here's the village of Visico. And we see above a normal uh, habitation the horizontal rising up of energy using Harry Oldfield's filter of his PIP camera. And he also then put it towards a natural hill and you can see again the horizontal rising of energy. But then lastly, he went to the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun. And we see here uh, on his... He took it, the filter over a movie camera. And uh, one thing that we started to notice, well, there's something going on here, rather unusual. Uh, there seems to be some sort of ball of energy uh, diving down to the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun retrieving energy and then going back again. I don't know whether you can quite see it. It's, it's over here. Let's have a look. There it is. There it goes. So what's that? Perhaps one of the mysteries that I'm not being able to solve in this particular lecture. But the important thing is that, that Harry Oldfield detected an anomaly in the way that energy behaves around this particular structure. As a result of that, the word got around and several other scientists came from different parts of Europe to study the phenomenon that Harry observed using his PIP camera. The first of these was uh, a group of people from um, the University of, uh, of Trieste in Italy and together with a sound engineer from Finland. Uh, his name was Heike Sarnolainen, a, a very um, a scientific uh, um, audio technician. Their task was to walk up and down the slopes with this very heavy equipment, trying to detect 
some energy anomalies that could be, in fact, recorded scientifically, not just visually. For example, they were looking for uh, electromagnetic waves or, or sounds. And Heike was looking for um, possibly infrasounds or ultrasounds. What they found, which has been represented by this artist, and I hasten to add that you can't actually see this with your naked eye, <laughs> uh, but um, what I'm about to play to you is um, a reduction down to our uh, audio uh, wave, which is between, what, what five and uh, uh, 20,000 hertz, of... Um, a recording in ultrasound of about uh, 28 kilohertz or 28,000 hertz. When I first heard this on my very first visit, I thought, oh my goodness, what have I let myself in for? Because this was no ordinary archaeological find. When I heard this sound, it was as if my hearing apparatus was opening up to cosmic chatter. I'm going to play it to you, and you can... Uh, just listen to it for a while and see what you hear, what you think. Here it is. sound that you just heard, uh, however it felt for you, is actually um, a constant sound. It's been recorded by different teams over a period of about four to five years at different times of the year, and it's always the same, so it's constant. And it also seems to have some sort of sequence to it, or some sort of mathematical sequence. And so this, again, is on the, the highest spectrum of sound, or ultrasound. Now, to me, uh, subjectively, when I heard that, I thought, well, what's it mean? What sort of information is in it? And who's listening? <laughs> because, uh, of course, like any sound, it can be measured uh, in what we call in our sciences today as electromagnetism, at 28 kilohertz, uh, we actually find that it, that it has a particular area. It's, it's about 4.5 meters at a particular width of this beam. And also, um, it has uh, an electromagnetic component, a light component. Interestingly, uh, when they measured the, uh, the speed that this sound is coming out. It's coming out not at the speed of sound, but at the speed of light. And secondly, that the intensity or strength of this beam increases as it rises up from the pyramid, which um, I did um, GCSE physics, or they called it O-levels in those days. And I seem to remember a gentleman called Hertz who described that the strength of a beam dissipates uh, according to the distance away from its source. 
So this would definitely be an example of non-Hertzian physics, or, or perhaps um, agreeing with the physics of Nikola Tesla, who uh, demonstrated with, with his tower in, in Wycliffe, I think it's called, that um, energy need not dissipate, or the type of physics that Tesla was dealing with. Could this be an example of Tesla physics? This, in fact, has been uh, replica uh, replicated over the years, and so this is not just one reading that happened once. Now, interestingly, um, just in April 2012, the same team came back, but this time they were looking for something different. They were looking for infrasounds. These are the sounds below our hearing. Uh, they're the sounds between five and 50 hertz. And these are the sounds that, for example, whales use to communicate across the oceans. They're also the sound levels that herds of elephants use to communicate across miles across the, the, the African land. Through, through the sound through their feet, they communicate through infrasound. And so remarkably, also in this area of the ultrasounds, there was, in fact, a recording that, kept, that was a number of times recorded at a very low level. And I'd like to play this to you. This is from uh, Heike Sonnleland from Finland again. And why we didn't have this 50 hertz? He's digging two microphones into the ground. mathematical sequence. Did you hear that? Something's going on <laughs> uh, in this structure that, that is measurable with our uh, modern scientific equipment. Uh, what is not perhaps measurable is the feeling. Uh, and what, what I hope to um, convey during the next um, hour is not just the, the scientific recordings and measurements, but also, uh, I would say, a, a feeling as we excavate with our hands. It's, we can tune in to the resonance of these structures. And, and someone who has very little experience, but some with dowsing myself, um, I, I could say that it's through this attunement that we can learn just as much. And I'll explain that as we go ahead. First of all, I wanted to show you a, a photograph of a um, heat photography or, or geophotography that was taken from a plane, from equipment used for uh, mining, uh, coal mining, diamond mining, and so on, uh, that actually detects um, shadows underneath the ground, indicating a cavity, a vein of coal, perhaps, or indeed a passageway, a tunnel, or a chamber. So this is a picture of the top of the Pyramid of the Sun. These are the shadows that have been marked with a colored uh, pen to indicate the colors indicate a specific depth 
And so here we have an indication through this um, very uh, precise method of photographing uh, passageways or chambers under the ground from as little as 5 metres down to 350 metres. Interestingly, when you stack these on top of each other, they look rather like um, a spiral um, swirling up or a vortex. They are, it seems, connected as well. So it, it would appear that if you were to get inside this structure, this pyramid, you could indeed walk your way up to the top. And it appears also that there are seven levels, uh, perhaps the seven chakras come into mind here, and also seven chambers. The infrasound that we heard could have been taken close to one of these chambers. So here we are, that's me. I'm back for the second year this time with, with a, another avid, excited group of volunteers. So the work that we've been asked to do is actually on the surface or the slope of the Pyramid of the Sun. And here what we're doing is we're removing some of the, the earth, the sediment, the debris that has fallen over countless years on the structure of this pyramid. And what we're finding is a remarkable layer at about a 45 degree angle of what appears to be stone. But the closer we look, uh, like this little piece here, it actually is not stone at all, but it seems to be a conglomerate or a fusing together of sand, pebbles, clay. In other words, concrete, ancient concrete. So when these samples were taken to um, the, the lab, they said, no, 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 no. Um, Concrete was invented by the Romans 2,000 years ago. This is dated much older than that. Therefore, you don't have concrete and you don't have pyramids. This, I'm pointing out with my, with my fingers here, is also um, a vein of uh, what seems to be quartz crystal. So you say, oh, come on, quartz crystal, that takes millions of years to fall. But actually, in, this is where the, uh, the gypsies have uh, used dynamite to build their homes to take some of this material. It's an extremely tough material. And we can see it's almost as if this is actually a binding material that is fusing together these um, slabs <coughs> forming the slope of the pyramid. And here we can see they actually do, even though they're slightly worn and deformed, they do look like they have 90-degree rectangular structure to them. So a sample then was taken to the University of Zenica in Bosnia, and they found, well, this is, uh, where did you get this? How did you make it? He said, well, actually, um, we didn't make it. We, we got it from uh, the Visico Hill. And they said, that's impossible. <laughs> because it has, um, this is the usual, a modern concrete having a strength of uh, 10 MPa 6 to 60, that, Industrial buildings were made with the strongest up to 60. This is going up to 133 to 94. This is stronger than the strongest concrete made today. And more important, that its water absorption is about um, 10 times less than modern concrete today. So in other words, we have an extremely advanced method of making concrete. <laughs> 
Um, this is a uh, uh, I performed electron microscopic analysis, and I proposed that the geopolymer chemistry that was used to make this ancient concrete, and it's full of quartz crystal. Another remarkable property is after working for six hours in 40 degrees uh, temperature, just to lie on this surface of this material for 10 minutes is enough to revive you at the end of the day. So it has healing properties. Most importantly, in 2008, there was a, a discovery of the edge of the structures we can see here showing that it does have a defined shape to it, which is very important uh, to, to show that this actually is not natural, but it is either built from scratch with perfect geometric <coughs> uh, properties, or it's a natural hill that has been fashioned by an ancient culture to take on the proportions of perfect geometry. Now, one, um, I don't know whether we have any botanists here, uh, today, but one remarkable uh, attribute of the size and the, and the soil in this structure by the, the Institute of, um, of Botany in the University of Zenitsa is that it's five degrees warmer than um, other parts of Bosnia, which means that, well, you'd have more of a Mediterranean climate. Uh, near a little water source, I took out my camera and took some photos of some of the flowers just growing um, on the sides of this pyramid. And um, they are, in fact, beautiful. So we need all sciences, not just archaeology, to study this phenomenon. Hi, I'm Austin Titchener from the Reduced Shakespeare Company. We're performing here at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and you are listening to Adventures in Dowsing from the British Society of Dowsers. Thanks very much to Austin there. You may remember Austin from podcast number 29, which was the last time we heard him. And I had the pleasure of meeting him and the rest of the Reduced Shakespeare Company when I went to see their show, The Complete History of Comedy, abridged at this year's Edinburgh Festival. But now, here's the news. Our uh, conference this year is only two weeks away now, and in Keele University, uh, the 5th through the 7th of September, and we've got a fantastic lineup of speakers for our 81st year, I have to say. Uh, we have Philippa Langley to tell us about the discovery of Richard III's remains, Dr John Ward, an archaeologist, Egyptologist and dowser. Uh, he's got a fascinating workshop called In the Footsteps of Hapu, I think it is, uh, Dowsing in Sacred Architecture. We have got Rasmus Gulp Berghausen from Liechtenstein, and Rasmus runs Dr. Masuro Emoto's Haddo Life Laboratory, so he'll be telling us about his work with water. Uh, we have Stephen Russell, the barefoot doctor, doing some workshops on Taoism. Uh, we have Joanne Bossonet on the history of King Henry VI's well. King Henry VI was a dowser, did you know that? Uh, we have Juanita Puddyfoot, who's doing a workshop on ancestral healing. Alana Moore from Australia returning to uh, give us a couple of workshops, uh, one about enhancing plant growth with power towers. And we have Evelyn Mulders from Canada who's uh, doing a workshop on vibration of sound essence. That's just a taster. Uh, we also have workshops on uh, water divining, archaeology. We have a field trip to the Druid Grove at Nipersley with Gary Bilcliffe and Caroline Hoare. Uh, it's looking like a great weekend, uh, so there's still some places available. If you want to come along, get onto the website at British 
thousands.org and get your booking in. Uh, some other events coming up uh, after that. On Sunday the 14th of September, the Archaeology Special Interest Group are dowsing for Iron Age and Roman remains, as well as the Saxon Monastery at Dorchester on Terms. Ten Dorchester on Thames, that is. The Archaeology Group also have another meeting on the Sunday the 26th of October, where they will be dowsing the Stonehenge landscape. The Earth Energies Group on the 4th and 5th of October weekend are at Avebury, and speakers include Christian Kiriakou, who you will remember from our podcasts 32 to 34, and also Maria Wheatley and Steve Dawson, who both presented at last year's conference. The Health and Wellbeing Group uh, are meeting on Saturday the 15th of November at Tamworth and Arden. Uh, speakers includes, include Jazz Bassey on Spirit Release Indian Style, Dr Helen Ford talking about the power of soul's truth, Vicky Argyle on colour therapy, and Sean Ferris on alchemy and the elements of health. Uh, Sean was also a workshop leader at our conference last year. And finally, a BSD member, uh, Elizabeth Brown, is doing a weekend workshop in Dublin on the 27th and 28th of September, suitable for all dowsing abilities. And you can find details of all these events on the main website at britishdowsers.org. But now let's return to Nigel's talk as we move location to the Pyramid of the Moon. I'd now like to move to the Pyramid of the Moon. Um, these are the red squares. These are where we have done excavation. And we found an external uh, terrace made out of these beautifully formed uh, stones and structures here. And it appears to be going in a spiral, rather like I described in the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun. We have those internal passageways that are stacked in a spiral. This actually externally appears as a spiral, rather like the, 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 the uh, golden mean, going from the top to the bottom. Uh, at the very top, we have actually removed these stones to find out how it has been built, because there was a lot of controversy. Archaeologists say, no, this is all natural. And so, uh, as you know, archaeology is destructive. Sometimes we have to remove layers in order to find what's underneath. And what is underneath here is as you can see, layer upon layer of the concrete, uh, a layer of clay, pure clay, then concrete and then clay, and concrete and then clay again. Remarkably, the, the clay having this, this more porous, the, uh, the concrete being non-porous, and so it tends to contract um, and expand uh, according to the temperature, according to the conditions outside, thereby um, cushioning out um, possible um, violent things like earthquakes. And I think a lot has been written about microquakes in pyramids, particularly in Egypt as well. So this is coming down to the bottom now. You see this perfect little uh, spiral coming to the bottom. And just as the audio recording is made of the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun, so they brought their equipment over to the Bosnian Pyramid of the Moon, buried the microphones, which are these very highly uh, technical microphones, into the ground. I'm now going to play to you the recording of the, um, the ultrasound coming out of the Bosnian Pyramid of the Moon. And this is a little much quieter, so I need you to listen. 
Well, we, we could listen to that for a long time. In fact, my, my wife uses it to background music while she's massaging. Uh, one's reminded of Julie Andrews at this point, uh, that, of course, the hills are alive. <laughs> uh, with the sound of music. And, and um, as, we, as we move away from our cities and, and uh, start to, to be quiet and start to settle down, our mental excitation uh, in the land, uh, and we feel the resonance of the land, particularly in this part of Europe. And for me, discovering Europe was just as wonderful as discovering these pyramids. So I think that Europe is magical. The third year, we're back. I'm back. We're starting uh, to excavate a different side of the pyramid. We're excavating the northern side, and what we've discovered is a crevice in the side. So we're going to find an entrance, because up until now, no one has got in. And I believe there's a reason for that, and I also believe there's a protocol for um, gaining entry into this pyramid, and that's not dynamite. I believe there's a spiritual protocol that we have to use. Where the young lady is sitting, actually, you, um, if you press your head, your ear, right here where there's this crack, you can actually um, detect some cool air uh, coming from inside the structure. And the air is very fresh, very beautiful. And also, pressing my ear, I could hear a very, very low, almost imperceptible vibrational hum. Uh, and I like to call it the, the ulm of the pyramid. But just by that, as we're excavating down there, one of the Italian archaeologists found a, um, a piece of carbon in the form of a leaf, an ancient leaf, that had been trapped between the concrete and the clay. Perfectly preserved. So we believe that this could be, well maybe five to 10,000 years old. So we sent it off, here it is, and the, uh, the answer came back, this is from Kiev, um, 24,800 plus or minus 200 years, thereby dating the earliest uh, age, or, or, or uh, no, I'm sorry, the minimum, minimum age of this pyramid to be about 25,000 years old. And that's actually the feeling that I've always had. In excavating, in working with this structure, it feels like we are working with a different time cycle, a different period of the history of our planet, and a different period of our species. This summer, uh, some more uh, carbon was found, and the lab results came back actually with 29,000 years. And those of you who studied the time cycles, the yugas, the uh, procession of the equinox will know that um, the 26,000 year mark is very important in that we're now looking, and actually it's very uh, interesting to ponder on the concept that at the beginning of a new age that we're now in, at the end, end of the Mayan cycle, the beginning of a new epoch of time, that we're working on a structure that was made before the end of the last time cycle. So we're connecting two time cycles. It's rather like two galaxies coming together. 
So some of those gung-ho archaeologists couldn't help. Now we're going to get in if it's that old. Then they hired much against uh, the more sensitively oriented uh, volunteers. They hired a very powerful drill. Unfortunately, as you can see from the expressions on their faces, uh, first the cable broke down, then the generator melted, and then finally the engine blew. <laughs> but then um, the, uh, our, our new archaeologist from this year, the supervisor, his name is Timothy Moon, He's a lot of experience in, in the Easter Island uh, statues. Uh, he said, well, you guys have got it all wrong. You're wasting your time excavating on the northern slope. Because any civilization culture of that antiquity would have had um, great reverence to the relationship of the sun and the moon. And so if you are to try and find an entrance, you better go round to where the sun rises or sets. And so what we did is we um, went and we watched how the shadow passed when the sun set behind the Pyramid of the Sun. This is um, in August, and it was a time when the shadow of the Pyramid of the Sun perfectly eclipsed the Pyramid of the Moon. And so what we did is we found that this point here, again another topological map, um, was the place we should start looking on this side. This is the side where we thought there had been some collapse or damage. As you can see, there, there's a build-up here. So we started to look. We found, with a little excavation, a promenade, starting where the two boys were standing, right up to the slope itself with steps. And you can imagine the priestesses of old with their wonderful robes and feathers and sounds and conches walking up that at a very important, uh, the equinox or solstice, and, and performing uh, a ritual at that time. As one moves further outside of the, the inner triangle of the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun, the dragon and the moon, we also find extended geometry in some of the other uh, structures. For example, this is the, uh, the earthen mound, that is the tumulus. This is a new small formation uh, in a little village called Ginja, or Ginja. And this is uh, another tumulus here. And we find um, that the geometry extends and even with the crossing of the lines, with the dragon here, with the Vratnika Mound, we find another inner triangle. There's a geologist who worked to extend this. This is the uh, Ginja. And as you stand there, your eye passes the mosque, which allegedly is built on, on a cross of ley lines, and extends to the Pyramid of the Sun. And the Pyramid of the Sun here is sitting on the bank here of the Pyramid of the Love. So it's this perfect alignment. But what happens if we extend that up into the heavens? We find that there is a relationship of the alignment with, the, with Cygnus, the, align, the, the uh, constellation of the swan. And within that, the, uh, the star of Deneb, which is one of the brightest stars 
that we can see still with our naked eye. And so, just like the Egyptian pyramids, there is most certainly a, a deliberate relationship with the cosmos. Indeed, if we were to now uh, take our uh, compass and draw a circle around that, we'd find that quite a few of the objects fit in a circle. We could continue drawing circles, and we'd find them, they, they would stack over one another rather like this. And this is uh, very uh, similar to a concept called the flower of life, uh, which is uh, this shape, which, of course, has very much intrigued Leonardo. Um, but for me, the relationship was vividly brought to light, or to life. On my little camera, as I was climbing down from the top of the pyramid of the moon, and I just took this photograph as the uh, shadow of the sun setting behind the pyramid of the sun cast its shadow. And I looked, and, and I don't know whether you could see what I saw, is a shadow pyramid. And it's sort of moments like that, and you think, gosh, is it, how perfect is nature? How perfect is the universe? And, and I thought to myself, well, what does this have to tell me? What does this have to teach me? And as I looked at, at my little screen viewfinder in my camera, to me it stood out that in our life that the shadow is as important as the light. Or, or perhaps the non-physical is, is as important as the physical. Or perhaps we could say the, um, the, what we call the, the physical world and the spiritual world have equal uh, equal strength in our life. So that, to, to me, summed up all of the, the charts and the, the geometry and the circles, just that one picture of the light forming its own shadow pyramid. But now, I'd like to now go on to the second part of the talk, and it's actually to move away from the pyramids altogether, because um, Sam Osmanagic, being um, an investigator of the pyramids in Egypt and in Mexico said that if this is a pyramid, if this is a pyramid complex, there needs to be underground tunnels that are associated with water. Because uh, as you may have read, a lot of work has recently been done in the, in the Giza Plateau of, of how the, the water from the Nile would come through and that would charge up the pyramids so he was looking for tunnels. And so here, about two kilometers away from the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun, we found an entrance. Now, there's lots of folklore about these tunnels. But what I'd like to do now is I'd like to invite you to come into these tunnels with me. It's very damp. That's the first experience you get. And very cool. As we go deeper into the tunnels, uh, the temperature is about 11 degrees Celsius. So quite cold, not too cold. In fact, working as a volunteer, it's ideal temperature for, for good work. The deeper you go in, there's something quite remarkable happens. You notice that your breathing is benefiting from being inside the tunnels. There's a, a Japanese word called uh, shinrin-kyoku, which means forest air breathing. 
And this was told to me by some of the Japanese tourists. They said, this is what we do in our forests. There's a great richness of negative ions that we find in these tunnels. But as you enter, something unusual tends to appear, and that is, it seems that there are side tunnels that are filled on the right and on the left still open. So it's a mystery why, if, there, if these tunnels are in fact related to the pyramids, why have they been filled? And I don't know whether any of you are particularly handy with a shovel and, uh, and sand, or whether any of you have done any concrete work before, but it's very difficult to fill a space to the top so that it doesn't fall down, a little gap appears. These are filled so there's, there's not a particle of air. And not only that, but they go all the way into the pyramids, this filling material. Also, at certain points, not only do we have uh, sediment uh, filling, but we also have um, these mysterious uh, filling with round stones, perhaps from the local river. So someone in antiquity built these tunnels, excavated the tunnels, and for some mysterious reason later, filled them again. Now, one um, geologist said, well, this is all natural, because as the glaciers retreated, there was a, a flood of waters came through, filled the tunnels, and filled them right to the top. But then I'd say, well, why do you get some tunnels that are filled and some tunnels that are empty, and why do you get the deliberate stacking? This is what we call a drywall. There's no cement. They're, they're, they're stacked. These have been here for thousands of years. Now, what the volunteers are doing is to slowly remove this filling to expose the original tunnels. Uh, we've taken a little bit of the uh, carbon that we found not in the tunnels, but in the filling, in the sediment. And this has come back to an age of 4,610 years old. So something happened about 5,000 years ago, or 4,600, that caused these tunnels to be filled. And I suspect that it's either some treasure that they wanted to be buried, or, or there's some technology, some powerful technology that whoever was around at this time did not want another group of people or culture or civilization to get their hands on. I spent many times alone for hours in these tunnels, and I never felt any fear. Uh, in fact, one of the first things that I was disabused of is the notion that we're the only species. I very much felt the presence of other um, energies beings and intelligence while I was working in the tunnels. In fact, um, uh, imagine I'm 70 feet uh, below surface level. The, the ceiling is very close to my head. Uh, once or twice, yes, I did think to myself, surely I must be getting claustrophobia any minute now. The moment I had that thought, I must be getting claustrophobia, oh my goodness, I felt something come and remove that thought and replace it with know you're safe, you're being held. And so um, it was certainly an experience of, of happiness, 
safety and joy that uh, I felt throughout my time in these tunnels, as well as a kind of euphoric, euphoric feeling that you get when breathing in all those healthy negative ions that bring so much blood, uh, oxygen-rich blood to the brain. The natural shape of these tunnels is a, a, as shown here. It, it reminds me of an eggshell, an egg. An egg is a very strong structure. It has great integrity to it. And so fortunately, there are still passageways and lengths of the tunnels that remain as they were found. There are artifacts that we have found. This is uh, Dr. Timothy Moon, and he's explaining some of the artifacts we found. Many of them are stone. Now, you may look at this and say, ah, oh, yes, primitive. But actually, the, the, the feeling around it is far from primitive. Instead, I, I would like to Imagine that um, there was a, a civilization with universal knowledge, and they would use the materials that were at hand, the materials of water, earth, fire, and air. And so many of the artifacts that we've been found, found are not so artificial, but just the natural use of what's there. We've also found inscriptions, writing, and art, or drawing. The artist here drew this definitely is a face which seems to have um, snakes coming out of the head. We spent a whole day talking about this one stone. And, and one of, one of the, the lady archaeologists from, from Croatia said, you know what this is? This is Medusa. Yeah. Yes. And, I, and I thought, Medusa, that is so interesting. He says, yes, do you know that, uh, well, we don't know, we're not taught this, but Medusa is the face that links the matriarchy as it turned into the patriarchy, or the interface between those two ages. While we are removing the sediment, we are finding... Rather large um, rocks. Now, these aren't really rocks. They're more monoliths. And this is the largest one. They are placed exactly over underground water flows. And as you know, water creates energy. It creates physical energy. So we believe that these megaliths were placed there by, by a megalith culture. And we believe about 30,000 years ago to absorb the physical energy of the water beneath and to absorb that into the, the stone. Again, some tests have been done, taking a little bit away, and we found that this actually is not natural. It is manufactured. Given a date of about 32,000 years ago, and it is a sort of polymer ceramic and in fact, it's hollow. This is a lid. This is a base. And it's been glued with that, um, that uh, crystal quartz that I showed you earlier onto this platform. So as if whoever placed this here did not want it to be moved one inch to the right or one inch to the left. So its position was very important. Using the, uh, the georadar camera, we've also found an oval object inside 
of this um, ceramic sculpture that is vibrating. We don't know what it is. We believe it might be a crystal. If so, what could be happening is what um, is called the piezoelectric effect, which is using um, the energy, the physical energy from water being absorbed in the ceramic, and then as it interacts with the quartz crystal, to convert it into an electromagnetic field. And then as that electromagnetic field spreads out in the tunnels, it interacts again with the quartz crystal and the round stone in the, in the drywalls, creating an ultrasonic effect. And indeed, uh, it has been measured at exactly 28 kilohertz ultrasound within the tunnels, just the same as in the top. And this is not a naturally recurring uh, ultrasound in nature. It is artificially produced. Quartz, calcite, and muscovite. It's an artificial ceramic. Uh, there is a tingling energy coming from the rock itself. And in fact, when I, I sat just there um, a little earlier, and, I, and by accident, my, my leg touched the outside of the ceramic sculpture, and I felt a, all the, the hairs on my leg stood on end, and I felt a swirling of energy coming up into my body. There's a gentleman called Yanis um, Pelko, who, who is an expert in Curlian photography, and linking that up with a computer array, and he's found that just one hour spent in these tunnels has an effect on our energy field. This is before entering, you can see uh, gaps in the energy field. After one hour, the energy had sealed itself back again, and a more balanced, coherent functioning of brainwave activity at the top. Interestingly, Jonas Pelko also measured the increase of energy according to where the chakras are. I found it very interesting that the greatest combination of increased and the same occurs on the fifth chakra. And uh, my friends who study the chakra says, well, that's the first chakra where we begin to communicate spiritually. A number of other parameters have been measured, such as uh, curry lines, Hartman, Hartman lines, black lines, power grids, of course, cell phone radiations. You don't get a signal. <laughs> Extraterrestrial radiation, water, uh, black water, they're either absent or neutral or beneficial. So if you can imagine, just to be in these tunnels is to be in an environment where there's no deleterious radiation or effects on the human physiology. In other words, the human physiology breathes a sigh of relief and you start to heal just by being there. And also we find many um, light friends or, or orbs, I'm sure. How many of you here have taken or, or found an orb on your camera? Uh, almost everyone. <laughs> Sometimes they seem to be wanting to show us something. And by the way, I, I believe that um, these orbs do come uh, with the um, accompaniment of happiness. I wanted to say right at the beginning that... Um, we need to have our emotional discernment, our emotional senses, as well as scientific, when we study the, the pyramids and the tunnels. 
this came to light very vividly for me. Um, a dear friend and, and um, an intuitive, his name is um, uh, Admir, one of the workers from Bosnia, lived in this area all his life. Uh, very intuitive. He is a dowser. And um, uh, one of the archaeologists from Italy. And Ricardo. Ricardo being very orthodox, very much in the central of measurement through archaeology and nothing else. They would get into tremendous arguments. Uh, Admir was saying, no, the beings, the guardians of the tunnels have told me today we need to excavate here and they're telling me we're not allowed here. Well, you can imagine what Ricardo would say. <laughs> he says, we have a scientific protocol, and we're going to follow it. Uh, in the, uh, the tunnels, um, after the volunteers had left for their supper, uh, Admir and Ricardo went back one night. They, uh, Ricardo went to one end, and Admir went to the other end. And uh, what actually happened was that um, I saw Ricky when he came back, and he was ashen white and shaking. Ricky, what's happened? And he said, no, I can't tell you. You're shaking. I said, Ricky, come on. You can tell me. And he said, um, I just got really frightened. I had a big fright. And I said, well, what was it? And he said, I, I heard this very fierce growling in the tunnels. And he explained that Admir was here, I was here, and we heard a growling. And I said, well, what did it sound like? And he said, well, it's, and if I could impersonate him, like that. And, he, and I said, Admir, is that you? And he said, Ricardo, I thought it was you. <laughs> and then it came again, and then it came again. And they said, we better leave. And it came a few more times. And I said, well, did you see anything? He said, no. So where did it come from? He said, it seemed as if it was coming from the very walls or substance of the tunnels. So um, the next day, we decided, um, before we go back into the tunnels, we needed to give some sort of offering or, or to, to show our humility so we decided, well, first of all, let's bring flowers. So we brought flowers. We couldn't bring them inside because that would be um, uh, carbon. That would, that would be uh, organic material, which is not allowed inside for archaeological reasons. And then one of the ladies, um, Susie, from Barcelona, said, well, I bought this little stone in Barcelona Airport. And there's a little heart stone. What we'll do is and we all held it in our hands. We brought it in. And we brought it to the deepest place in the tunnels. And we placed it there um, as a love offering. And asking the guardians of the tunnels, the, the beings in there, for um, forgiveness and to ask for permission for us to continue to work. And so we did. Then in the first break, when we went out for our tea and coffee, Susie walked out and... Um, the first thing she saw on the ground was a heart-shaped stone. She'd never saw it before, and she's holding it up to me. And without thinking, I say to her, that's an indication from the energies of the tunnels that our offering has been accepted. 
and we can continue working. So that's just a little explanation about how uh, emotionality is important. It's to understand what you're feeling as well as your seeing and measuring. And in fact, it was later that day that, that Pilar from Madrid had an extraordinary experience where she was crying. I was the kind of the foreman down there. Said, Nigel, Pili is crying, which is very embarrassing because we have tourists coming through and she's pushing the wheelbarrow, sobbing at the same time. <laughs> so I said, Pili, Pili, what's happened? And she said, um, it's a little difficult to explain, but, but I remember her words were very broken sp English Spanish that um, there was a wave of emotion that flood through the tunnels after we went back to work. And she said, it was like being in love, but about a thousand times stronger. We also find this happen when we open up new chambers. We're finding a language. We're, we're finding signs. Many of them appear to be very similar to runes. We've also found um, outside in the forests, in the valleys of Bosnia, a number of standing stones with diagrams, these swirling energies with the, the vertical energy coming up here. These are called stotaks. So perhaps this could be our method of going back in time and seeing what our ancestors, how they understood this technology of the pyramids. Every pyramid concentrates seismic waves, drawing electric charges from underground waters and tunnels, releasing them into the atmosphere. This is by Havroika Sujic, uh, published in Nexus magazine. So just um, earlier this year, our team of scientists went back and this time they set up an array of instruments and they did something that I wasn't too happy about at first because what they proposed to do is to push in to the pyramid at the top or induce an electrical current or push in some voltage so that it would travel down and then bounce up. In other words, to induce a stimulus to see what was working inside. These are some of, for 52 hours, they continued putting this pulsation in. It was analyzed at Zagreb, Belgrade, and Vienna. In summary form, they found that as they induced or pushed in this small voltage of about 1.9 volts, that it bounced back at a distance below the, the Earth's crust, a distance of about two miles, almost 1.8 miles, beneath the surface of the planet. And that what in fact is happening is it's bouncing up and coming back with uh, an amplitude, a, a greater strength of power. Now, one could ask, perhaps this may at one point, due to the, the movement of the crust, may have been underneath directly at one time. But how remarkable that whoever the builders of the pyramids are could have detected 1.8 miles beneath the surface of the planet and known that they could use that for technological purposes. This is a very advanced culture, in my opinion. Perhaps our ancestors who worked in stone 
did know exactly just what we're beginning to find out today. Now, the word for welcome in Bosnian is dobrodosli. So I'd like to finish my talk today by saying that if any of you would like to come with me the next time I go, I'm going to be arranging a tour in spring for the spring equinox. You'll be uh, very welcome. Uh, Dobrodosli. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Nigel once again for that very enlightening talk. Now, if you would like to hear more from Nigel about the Bosnian pyramids and you are a BSD member, you can find an extra special edition podcast that features his workshop that immediately followed this talk, and that's in the member section of the BSD website. This is extra content that's only available to BSD members. It's not available from the main iTunes podcast feed, but you can quickly become a digital member of the Society for only £30 online. So what are you waiting for? That's all we'll have time for today. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Hanley Swan, England. For more details about the society and find out how we can help you get more out of your dowsing, please see our website at britishdowsers.org. You can also check out our forum and find us on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can send us an email to uh, podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or you can leave comments on individual episodes at the website on www.adventuresanddowsing.com And if you do enjoy the podcast, please give it a good review on iTunes. So many thanks for listening, and uh, thanks as always to Hilary Brooks, Ian Pegler and Not For Pussies for the music. And be sure to join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.